Yeah, that's always a, a nice thing. I, and, and that's why I like it here as well. I want to say I'm going to continue to endorse us as a Pacific Northwest podcast well, here. We, we never leave. Well, and, and because like it, the, the weather cycle is enough so that you don't get used to the niceness of, of the weather, how beautiful it is. Yeah. So that when it comes around again, it does feel like a real nice like revelation and like this this brief window of time where everything aligns. And then when the miserable season comes, mi- miserable in air quotes, uh, you can indulge in the the comfort that is there as well. Like it's this nice balance you have of, of seasons here. Like people like to paint the Northwest as gloomy, gross and muddy all the time. And Which it is. is. True. Yes. Yeah, it is. But they don't, they don't highlight how that's actually a good thing. How it produces such like greenery that's vivid all year and how the nature is really nice. And it has like the most hikeable places of anywhere I've been, but, but you can only use that three months a year. So you really take it for granted half the year. Oh, just, just the, the, the beauty of, of constantly changing weather. Like I I mentioned here, how like there's like a downpour for like 20 minutes of, of rain or whatever, but it's like the rain here is very different than rain in other places. Like if you go to, to somewhere a little more, tropical per se if it rains uh you can't go anywhere for like two hours because it's just unnavigable like it's it's just pouring down and impossible to see through especially like if if driving and you're very likely to lose control of the car here like it rains frequently but in like small enough amounts that it's very bearable you can walk through the fucking rain if you really want although i guess you were chasing your garbage can yeah (laughs) there was I, that's that's more a fault of uh, the street layout, apparently. And I think what happened was the storm drain that's on our, our side of the street, like I think a bunch of leaves got caught up in it. And so that caused the side of the road there to flood a, a little bit, just like enough that it was uh, very, very deep, like, like probably uh, almost two inches of, of water, I would say. <laughs> Uh, and, and it managed to be enough to like sweep up because it happened to be trash day. Uh, it, it took my, my, my trash cans and, and washed them down the street a little bit and I had to go, go grab them. It's all fun, right? That's memories. That's memories it, in your new place. It was fun. It was funny. Uh, yeah. I think, uh, I, I, I just thought it was very hilarious. Uh, I wasn't bothered by it too much. Yeah. Luckily, luckily none of the real like trash or anything got out. Like I only had to pick up a couple pieces of things. <laughs> It takes a really big thing to really get me bothered. Um, I guess uh, I guess it teaches us a lot of perseverance too. Um, being in that weather, which is kind of a constant drizzle that we never really mind. N- none of us own umbrellas. Um, th- it would be tragic to walk out with an umbrella here. It's actually it's it's kind of a big faux pas if you see someone walking down the street with an umbrella in, in the Pacific Northwest. Here, we judge you for it very harshly. Yeah. I mean, it means that you haven't built up any perseverance yet and that you don't know the weather, that, that you know you'll be fine with the sweater. You'll be okay. So. Yeah. So it's, it's a very tourist mentality to carry needing an umbrella. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, I'll catch pneumonia before you catch me with an umbrella. <laughs> anyway, I see people taking care of themselves outdoors. I, I feel bothered by it. They, Yeah. Yeah. Same thing with like, like sunscreen. Don't wear sunscreen. You don't wear no. sunscreen up here. Uh, I don't think I do all year. Um, <laughs> it's it's to a point where where I forget to during the summer, and then I just endure the sunburn afterwards. Uh, I'll be I, going I, to California in August. It should be like high, like over a hundred the whole time. What really yeah. sticky desert Palm Springs weather? So uh, 
I don't know how I'll handle it because I'm so acclimated to this, and I, and I burn if it gets to 85. So. I just uh, I saw my brother just yesterday because I had to take him to the airport, um, and he told me that he's, he's with the National Guard, and for some training uh, in in uh, August, they're gonna send him over to uh, Death Valley. Yikes! So uh, where really where it gets hot. up to 120 degrees Fahrenheit uh, there, so. That should be fun. <laughs> that might be what we're dealing with. We have a pool, but that's kind of like, do you really want to be in the pool with the sun at that time? Um, yeah, just hang out, with the, yeah. hang out with the air conditioner. Get an air conditioner sit yeah. in front of it. <laughs> yeah, it should still be good. Um, and that's, that's the other thing. I said. It's the perfect time for movies back at the theater as well because the theater's opening up. you got nice air conditioning. You know, you could kill a couple hours going to see a movie together now that the world's Coming back together. I'm excited to, to get back to the theaters. I think I'm going to go see a movie next week in the theater. I'm, I'm looking at a couple places around, and I think I found one, but but we'll see. That, that'll be like a next week thing. Well, you can check in and see, did David go to the movies? By the way, I'm David. This is Calvin. Welcome to the Twin Geeks cast. And we're at a 121 this week, and we'll be doing Romancing the Stone. First, I have a, a movie about sweltering heat of the Washington Heights in New York. Uh, there's this whole thing preceding a blackout where a community of Latin Americans are coming together in their borough. They're, they're like a, well, Manhattan Heights is like upper Manhattan. So by the bridge. Um, and they're, they're talking about like this community that's no longer visible there, but it once was. So he's telling this story to these children and it's full of eclectic dance. And it's all leading up to this blackout where they learn how to party and learn how to celebrate like this last moment in their neighborhood uh, in the Heights. It, I think there's so much that's very pleasant about it and so nice to watch. Uh, I like the big dance numbers. It sometimes plays as a pop music video more than like a, a thoroughly designed like choreographed movie for me. Um, I'm sure it plays like it does on the stage. Uh, I haven't seen the stage show, but uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote it uh, before Hamilton. So this was the show preceding Hamilton. You get that kind of a liberal pop optimism that uh, informs Hamilton. But I think there's uh, much less risk here, right? Like it's not it's not like rewriting a history. It's honorable to a community instead. Uh, it's just centralized just on this community. And um, I don't think there's any danger in doing that necessarily and, and having it being just a celebratory vision of what a Latin community looks like in that neighborhood. Uh, I, I enjoy most of the songs here, but um, there's also a point where all of it goes far too long and it's it's too much of a movie. Um, I'd say with by an hour in, I was about ready for it to close out and it's like an hour or two and a half hours. So oof, oof. yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, waiting for, for the big moments in the songs. I almost wish it were sung through because it has a lot of uh, umbrellas of Cherbourg, like a mentality as they're like singing through the... Uh, the storyline of the piece, right? Like uh, the storylines mostly conveyed through song and the character uh, interactions, their meaningful parts are mostly conveyed through song. There's only that one part where he's narrating it to children, which I like because it's not like he's just narrating a story. He's actually passing down oral tradition to the kids. So there's a lot that's likable about it, but uh, too much of it, uh, too much likable stuff that uh, it really gets in the way of properly enjoying it as a musical. And uh, a lot of the numbers aren't really my thing anyway um i guess they cut an important one sunrise which uh, i listened to which is a crucial part of the musical um but there's there's other good stuff in there i mean they 
uh, part of the events surround like um, a ticket exchange. What do you call it? like a gambling? Um, what do you call it? a raffle? Like for ninety six thousand uh, dollars. So our main character works in a bodega, and there's this raffle, and someone won from his shop. So uh, they they get together and have a big musical by the pool, and that's where like the the whole thing really shines and shows like its expression of neighborhood vibes and they're always like stopping and like let me just hear the beat of my street like it's so on the <laughs> nose and and like a particularly latin in a celebratory way but um there's there's just something about it where it drags and where it's a a little bit too much movie a little bit too much meat on the bones i think uh, i think a really uh more linear and uh, direct representation but also one where the camera does it more favors, I think would uh, do a little better. This is from the director of Crazy Rich Asians, and uh, he's uh, um, John Chu. He's uh, also done like Step Up to the Streets. Uh, he all of his movies involve dancing and uh, kind of urban choreography. So I like the through line there. But uh, his movies also look big, expensive, and in my eyes, a little bit vacant. Um, I think they lack like a real visual identity. I think something really connecting it to that culture could really nail it through and be like, this is a good musical. You have to go see. Well, while the, the value of these kind of, you know, more broadly representative celebratory cultural films, uh, you know, are, are becoming kind of, you know, important mainstays of, uh, you know, pop popular blockbuster films currently right now. I, I agree with you that there does seem to be a certain vapidness to their content beyond that, you know, celebratory mentality there that, uh, you know, you've got the the representation, you've got the depiction of authentic culture on screen. But if it's just that, you know, how much is there really worth here, particularly if the, the length of the film is going on, you know, needlessly long, uh, you want to you want to blend that that authentic representation of culture with something more more interesting, be it a, a story or, you know, uh, something, you know, more visually inventive or, you know, a, a meaningful depiction of uh, an event or a time and place. Um, and again, like, you know, you, you can't say that these uh, somewhat vacuous depictions aren't a, a good thing necessarily, yeah, seeing that representation good. out there. It's and whoever it resonates with is always wonderful. But uh, we're, we're reaching the point where, you know, we, we want a little bit more. Uh, I think that's fair to, fair to want. I think it's fair to want... Um, representative pictures that also have a lot of meat to them and also mean something and don't run far too long to alienate an audience. I think there's, I think there's something valid to just wanting them to be like any other movie, just uh, the same way we'd criticize any movie. Yeah. It's great I, I, that we have it. I have a question. Uh, do you yeah. think in the Heights would have ever got greenlit if Hamilton wasn't such a sensation? No, I don't, I don't know why it would, <laughs> but uh, I mean, Possibly right, but Lin Manuel Miranda is like his own. Um, yeah, I mean, he he was already industry. like he was gaining traction within the Heights. I know that was a big deal on Broadway, well, but like then Hamilton, like really, really fucking blew up. There was the thing where Obama invited him to go speak, and then it became like the you know like the liberal sensation. Like, okay, look, we have this thing, and then Hamilton got made after he did his Hamilton rap there with Obama, and then it was like okay, this is like a cultural touchstone for a certain political sect of society. And I, I do want to, I'm going to take a second at least here just to, to appreciate Hamilton, uh, but yeah. also acknowledge its its issues. I think that that kind of liberal, liberal, uh, 
Obama era progressivism, like optimism, a mentality, representation, you know, push all that. I think those are valid critiques. Uh, I don't think that's wrong necessarily, but I think there's obviously more to it than that. And those aren't inherently like like negative things just because it's a product of that uh, you know political influence doesn't mean that there's well, a no. value to be that's added how to i them. felt at the time too so and and even watching it uh last year was it just last year god yeah it yeah. was <laughs> uh like for the first time it reaching a mass market i think again there's inherent there's an inherent value in anything that promotes a an inspiring uh and um, inviting study of history, particularly uh, a less covered section of history. And and even myself, you know, I, I felt that touch with Hamilton, uh, as well as some other things that, that I watched around the same time, kicked off uh, an interest in, you know, rediscovering and, and learning more about uh, foundational American history. Uh, and, and I spent probably the majority of the last year just like really indulging and learning in all of that, and particularly, you know, the the history of the, the the governance and the development over time in our country here, and I found that an endlessly fascinating, uh, you know, kind of journey and adventure to go on. So I, I've got Hamilton at least to thank for that. Thank you, thank you, Lin-Manuel Miranda, for making history seem interesting to me and making me dig deeper. Although it did expose a lot of things that you yeah. kind of cheated with in, in, in Hamilton there and yeah. covered up and. Uh, Man, that that Burr guy is is way worse than, than you make him out to be. Just to remind I, you, I, I I feel bad having sympathy for that guy now because he was a traitor, a very right. bad true man. <laughs> okay, we did it informally, but it was our film of the year last year. We did we did decide to do that and write an informal piece about it. So we yeah. do like Hamilton here. Um, there is a lot to it, and I respect Lin Manuel Miranda. Um, I like that he has a whole industry around him. I, honestly, so. I think it's I think it's good. I like catchy songs, and uh, he's a great songwriter. I mean, he kind of has his own voice, uh, and you get that here. If you like Hamilton, yeah. you'll like this. Speaking of uh, burgeoning artists with catchy songs uh, and films that may have been the best of their year, despite maybe not qualifying as traditional films uh, in, in the normal sense, Bo Burnham. Yeah, we discussed it last week, but this week you went in and watched a. I did all uh, his uh, stand up, right? I, I did. Yes, you you talked about Inside, his new comedy special that dropped on Netflix last week. I gave my impassioned uh, speech yeah. about it, last and, week. and I had not quite had the time to see it yet. But I watched it, I think, like the next day, or even maybe the night after we talked. And uh, I, I, I've, I've always loved Bill Burnham, uh, but this one definitely struck something even more so. And uh, I, I was able to really take in a lot and felt, I think, a lot of the same emotions you were already talking about there. And I decided that, like, because <laughs> originally I, I was excited just to sit down, watch a nice comedy special, not think too much about it. Not an by, option. Yeah, by the end, I just had I had a lot of emotions and thoughts and, and feelings about deconstruction, deconstructing his approach to to kind of artistry and discussions of performance and and this kind of more metatextual play with the format and uh it just had a lot of thoughts to get out and write out and then i of course you know was motivated then to go back and look over his previous stuff which i've enjoyed greatly and and kind of just chart that development because inside has a lot of retrospective qualities to it uh one one particular song obviously highlights that where he he literally like kind of like sits down 
and watches this video from him when he was on, you know, doing controversial songs or whatever, you know, snappy, clever songs on YouTube. And, uh, you know, and, and he goes into a whole song kind of like reflecting on the, the stuff he used to be. But uh, I like that one a lot as well from this new one because it's it's kind of multi-layered in what it does, which is, which is I think, uh, demonstrates his progression as an artist and his like look to make commentary and satire on his subjects because that song the 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 i'm i'm problematic song uh it, it's doing a lot of things at once it's kind of set to this kind of motivational like 80s um you know training regiment uh song where and he's doing all these exercises at the same time so it's like a kind of metaphorical idea of working out these problems he has with with his past you know transgressions and such while also like praying for like forgiveness and stuff to a kind of literal god or you know more so in the case's audience but also while he's doing that in a very literal sense and, and trying to express these concerns and regrets about controversial or outdated things he said in the past he's also satirizing the people and celebrities who who try and put themselves like on on a cross like that essentially to to bear for their sins and, and again in a literal sense of doing that and so acknowledging like like trying to talk about these issues that he's having while at the same time lampooning and exposing how pretentious they could be which is uh something that's always existed in this work going back through the three previous comedy specials but uh or, in the beginning, it's it's a kind of veneer of irony that he wears, uh, that he's, you know, like this idea that his, you know, he's aware of his pretension and, you know, he's playing it up or down to cover up for the fact that he does have genuine insecurities about the matter. And as he evolves through each special, he becomes more open and honest with these feelings and willing to engage with them in a genuine sense instead of kind of like a coy and sarcastic manner. Uh, to a point where you you get to inside and and there's almost and there is a very literal nakedness that he he chooses to embrace in in bearing his uh, soul to to the audience and concerns about his you know worth as a performer as an artist what he's actually contributing to the world you know especially as things continue to seem to crumble more and more around us and become aware of these insurmountable you know social injustices and this this inability to feel like we can uh, affect change in a world. I'm generally drawn to like comedians, comedians. So I like like Norm Macdonald or uh, George Carlin and the the people that comedians really, uh, you know, looked up to. And the reason people started doing comedy, I'm drawn to those kind of guys. But uh, uh, for me, there's something interesting about Burnham because he is deconstructing and um, almost you know, almost providing a show about comedy when he does the show. Um, they're, they're always talking about what comedy is and why we're watching it and our relationship to a comedian. And uh, there's, there's a lot of depth there that, that you don't get in the usual stand-up. Uh, it might not be what I always find funny, but um, I'll, I'll always uh, respect him and, and look at his work in, you know, a, a different light than someone who just goes and does a set. And uh, he seems very anxious and himself very cautious about that relationship himself that uh he he doesn't seem to want to embrace that that obvious role that the comedian always has and and he it makes it harder i guess for those comedians because uh 
I, I don't really know where to go from there. And uh, I think inside is the way you go from there. Uh, I, I think that's important. I think it, I think it leads off his other specials. If you just watch this one, I don't know what it would mean, but you combine that with his other work and it starts to look like a body of comedy that is important and not just self-contained. Mm-hmm. There's, there's definitely, I think a, an aspect to Bo Burnham as a performer. That's very interesting because you, you never, can quite pin down what is Bill Burnham and what is performance, you know, in, in a, uh, you know, in this way that he's playing with what he presents to the audience and what is true and what is this kind of character he's taking on to discuss the nature of performance and comedy and how to present yourself to the world. Uh, and that develops more and more as he goes along in the specials. And I think part of that is uh, why he could be so off-putting for some people. Uh, there, there's a large section of people, I think, who do not enjoy Bo Burnham at all and, and do, in fact, find him kind of pretentious and, and, and vapid. Um, uh, obviously, we're not those people, but <laughs> understandably, I'm sure there's a lot of people tuning out right now who are not interested in hearing us discuss this straight white male comedian who you know uh discusses his his issues and you know how you know what to do with his money and all this privilege he has and stuff i mean but i think those are takes a level of grandeur and self-importance to even think about doing that right but i i think because he's self-critical of it and uh, i think he can admit especially in inside what the nature of that relationship is and and why he's doing it i think we find out why so I don't think there's any, I, I've seen people have those negative responses to him and um, I, comedy, you know, it's not for everyone. <laughs> not every well, special should be for everyone. Um, it's it's subjective. And this one's definitely a very different one. Uh, at times I'm hesitant to say that it is a comedy special. Like it, it very obviously is, but it it's is. not, it's not aiming for jokes as much. And well, it, I don't and think it, comedy just has to be laughs either. I think no, comedy no, I, could I be, I think this is comedy and comedy is so much bigger than making us laugh. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I think the, the, the things it kind of exposes and discusses the, the humor and some of the very dark elements of, of livelihood nowadays, and also the ironies of, of life that are constantly, you know, we're being berated with. I think it's highlighted very well inside and as uh, the whole special feels like an extension of the last like 15 minutes of his previous special make happy from 2016 where that's a very kind of like emotionally more more revealing moment and it's also humorous at the same time and blending these elements together to kind of explore this this uncertainty about self and how we're all kind of like performing or, or trying to strike this balance between you know what how we feel we should present ourselves versus what we are and, and trying to dissect pull that out and and inside does a lot of this all while also processing all the emotions of being locked inside during a pandemic for more than a year um you know this need to to kind of like create or contribute in some way fighting against depression in a myriad of ways but also like all of the other external societal issues that we're fighting you know systems of injustices um, you know, having your voice heard in the world and the the issues of being slowly consumed, not even slowly, rapidly consumed by, by you know, uh, the increase in social media presence and, you know, the control of, of, of tech industries imposing on, on every impact, you know, every part of our lives and how all-consuming that can feel. And there's a couple of songs that, that really highlight that, 
that feeling while you know like like expressing the, the genuine horror and helplessness you feel nowadays but also through a, a comedic lens that helps you process that idea a little bit more there's we could do an entire podcast on his kanye bit of make happy um mm-hmm. I, uh, I do think that i'll say i think make happy is still probably his best better, comedy, better. Right? yeah it's it's consistently like entertaining and funny throughout and i think every song is terrific there whereas inside definitely has some shakier ones it is a much more haphazard show like at you know even stated by Bo himself uh in there because it is kind of a hodgepodge in many ways i feel like that's representative though of like the last year and how we all feel and i think that chaos is really something important to look at too as a as a piece of it and i think he hits a wider breadth of ideas in inside and emotional things like you know like one, one of my favorite bits from the make happy special is the country song parody that he does yes. and there's nothing there's nothing particularly deep about that it's just it's a it's a hilarious and accurate skewering of the 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 fake you know the folk quality of a uh, modern country pop and it's it's just very well executed and, and catchy um where, whereas i think most of the songs in inside are touching on something socially relevant or very personal. Uh, one, one of the, the bigger moments that kind of hit me hard is, is when he does the, the bit about turning 30. And I think that's a, a, a universal feeling that a lot of us uh, of this generation at least are kind of coming towards and reconciling with, even those of us who are not quite yet 30, but are feeling the, the creeping you know uh, hand of time you know, wiping away uh, all of our vitality and, and youth. Jesus Christ, it's, man. Yeah. Life doesn't end at 30. I know, I know, I know. All but of like, our vitality and youth. What is oh, it's what it feels, it feels like. It's certainly. Um, I still feel like I'm 18. It, uh, just my body hurts. That's it. <laughs> well, I, I, I at least sympathize with the emotions that, that Bo Burnham is putting through in that song and this idea that life is is going by it feels like very quickly obviously for someone in their 30s and this lack of finding achievement yet or this uncertainty about direction even for someone who is successful and very you know on on a path as as Burnham is Mm -hmm. uh and how the uh, people around you you know seem to be moving forward and achieving things like he's got that that repeating lyric about my, my stupid friends are having stupid children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, at least it's someone who's, who's in that same position. It feels like the, you know, everyone else is, is rushing ahead and finding a purpose. And you're, you know, in the same place you were six years ago, uh, you know, and just have been kind of like surviving the whole time. <laughs> I guess happily for me, I found my purpose right before 30. Right. So I, right. I felt driven and I feel connected and, I guess I'm not looking for it anymore. Uh, sure. And again, it's a, it, like you said, it's a different thing for, for different people. You're the stupid friend who's having stupid children. I know. You know? <laughs> but she's not but, very ugly. She's beautiful. So. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but again, there's, there's a lot of songs, I think, that really touch uh, something, you know, about that, particularly the way the world is is rapidly evolving. He does the song about the, the internet as well and how it's consuming everything and, and kind of poisoning us in this way to to constantly which is also something that's touched on in make happy that this idea that the there's this 
whole new world out there that's basically invented for us all to constantly engage with and perform for and put ourselves out there. And that's not really the way the world was intended to function. There's no... We're not adapted to that. We weren't no. ready for that. <laughs> we didn't. Well, we were never and, taught how to deal with that shit. You know? And the consequences of that were, were never really conceived and and how yeah. that the the reverberating effects of that are we still don't are going know to be oh and and yeah. and the fact that so much is out there and so many toxic and influential things in in particular is just so accessible and, and free and unfiltered and and while the internet is certainly a glorious and, and binding thing you know it's it's a it's this kind of double-edged sword um you know and, and so sometimes i sit and i reflect on that you know especially when something like that song comes and kind of highlights it again for me. It's like, is, is it a good thing? Is it a, is a bad thing? Has the world changed for better or worse? Am I happier because I have this totally interconnected thing and this, this bastion of knowledge at my fingertips? Or do I feel like it's overall harms on the world are, are too great to have ever justified its existence? Is this global interconnectivity, you know, uh, good or bad. And obviously the answer is not one or the other. It's, you know, it's a mix of things and it has qualities that are both, you know, constructive and destructive. Uh, and we can never really decide if it was for the betterment or, you know, worsening of society. We have to use it. Um, there's a, there's really no getting around our necessity for it. If you've been plugged in and you've developed as we have, I, I don't think you could just turn back on it, but uh, and but, it, but it it hurts. I mean, there's something about that 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 hurt internally. Thinking about what an influence it has and how half my time on the internet, I'm aggravated and and don't want to be there. And uh, would I would I spend that time in my life that aggravated? Otherwise, it, I mean, just look at this podcast. Doing this podcast, yeah. very <laughs> aggravating activity for me. The the other thing is that I feel I feel really bad at the internet. I don't feel like I'm interneting right half the time. You don't? Uh, no, no, I don't. Like, how much is the right amount of engagement? Where do you put in your your efforts to? You Just know, look at your metrics on Twitter. <laughs> can Can you really measure like and, and like how much is that charting your your progress in terms of you know how much social clout that you're you're engaging with or engaging? But how do you also not live on the internet? Ah. Uh, you know, I, I, I never know if I'm doing enough or doing too much. You know, how much should I pull away? Should I throw my phone in the garbage and just, you know, exist in the real world for extended period of times, except for what I need to access, you know, certain information? Or should I embrace it more fully and, and try and become, you know, like, like put myself out there and make myself aware because everything is now so interconnected? You know, so and, and, and that's where everything exists. And particularly, I think the pandemic highlighted that perhaps more than even before, where it's like you you have to engage with the Internet if you want to have any kind of momentum in, in life. Well, there's no there's no existing in the real world necessarily. You have, if you work, you have to use the Internet now. I mean, that's the pandemic uh, shifting that evolution towards something that we've been leading to for many years. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, Bo Burnham, he started on the YouTubes, right? He yeah. was a YouTube video creator. I think they called themselves. Yeah, in the very early days of YouTube. So that's uh, very interesting to see his like evolution of Pat and then him going back on it, doing like his reaction video bit. Yeah. Uh, which for yeah. me is the, the really a gem of the comedy there. Well, there's a lot of things. I think that's another great thing that's highlighted inside that he couldn't do on a stage, which makes yeah. it's, it's some of the very innovative things with this particular format and working because 
uh, I, I said this before when we talked about something like feels good, man, uh, last year. And that is that I, it's, I don't think a lot of filmmakers really know how to capture the concept of the internet and how it feels, you know, to engage with here. But I think Burnham is one of the few to, to really capture that. And we, we saw that as well with something like eighth grade, his first narrative feature that he directed, uh, which is very infused with the, you know, social media and demonstrating that on screen. And that comes through a lot in Inside as well, particularly in, in a couple of segments where he uses the uh, aspect ratios of social media on, you know, on phones and Instagram and such to, to emulate that, that visual and that framing of it, you know, uh, that we are so constantly engaged with and how that changes our perceptive uh, perceptions of that. Um, j just by, you know, even something as simple as the frame in which, you know, it's cast and how we view each other. But also, uh, you know, extending on, he does, you know, a bit where he's doing like a, a Twitch stream, essentially, of, of himself. And it's another way of processing and reflecting on, you know, his own feelings about, about himself and the world and depression and such. Uh, but through the lens of, of this, you know, more modern mediums through which we communicate and uh, process things with one another. Absolutely. Um well, I think I think we did good coverage. Yeah, it's now. it's a lot. I could I could keep going on to. I didn't even touch on the second <laughs> special, yeah. but that's okay. Uh, I was just very happy to have seen it, and I watched Inside a couple times now, and I you know I, I was very taken with it. It's it's my favorite thing of the year so far, uh, and so, something again like like playing with the medium in a way and flirting with this idea of what's kind of real from a performer and what's not in a way that very few films or documentaries or anything do i feel like and that's something that can very easily go overlooked because you know uh it's in it's easy to be inherently dismissive of something labeled as a comedy special yeah um i think it's our front runner as far as site-wide goes i think I, I think we're looking at that as an important thing if we could go with the other side of the wind the lighthouse hamilton <laughs> inside i think that's a really diverse well, interesting selection we'll have quite the eclectic uh best of there i think that'd be interesting i that i would to be ask, cool is this the best thing the pandemic has produced? Like, yeah, I think so. Wise, Content-wise? I think specifically this is the best comment on it, too. And it's not one where I'm, like, groaning and, and thinking. I never once thought, oh, God, a pandemic film. Well, well one of the interesting things is that he, he never mentions the pandemic. It never right. comes up by, by name or reference. Like, only in the matter of, like, this is a thing that's kept us inside for a year. Like, the, the funniest thing happened, he says at one point. And that's, like, the closest <laughs> he gets to saying the word. Right, that's important, and uh, I think it is our front runner. And to that, we say Gucci. <laughs> uh, so the Kaminsky method. Do you know about the show? Uh, no, I don't. Yeah, okay. so, tell me on a hit me with what? What is this? Okay, it's a Michael Douglas vehicle for Netflix, where he is an acting coach, Sandy, and he. Uh, so he plays this acting coach. He's leading uh, performers through. Um, they're like college kids and they're very ignorant and you know they're, they're just learning about the world but they're this generation so it's an older guy like leading them through this uh, method acting so it's Kaminsky method that's his name that's his acting style um, and that's the name of the show so uh, it's very funny watching him perform with these young performers and Michael Douglas of course has a lot of gravitas and uh, a lot of gravitational pull on the screen so anyone working with them does really good uh, uh, one of the kids does like um 
uh, Ma Rainey's uh, Black Bottom for their thing. They try to do the play, but they're a white kid. Uh, and so that's that's a funny interplay. There's one black girl in the audience. Everyone just turns and looks at her like, do we accept this? Is it is it that? Um, it's fun to watch uh, just their, their permutations of like these plays and uh, this amateur acting, but uh, set against this great actor. Um, Alan Arkin plays his agent. And the fantastic thing about it is just their beautiful relationship, uh, just sitting with Douglas and Arkin as they're, uh, you know, kind of like hashing through his uh, whole career and um, Arkin's unending love for him until um, I, I watched uh, the first couple seasons. I'm just in the third one now. So I really wanted to do a Romancing the Stone, but uh, um, Danny DeVito plays his uh, urologist in the film. Uh, so he goes in and a uh, Danny DeVito has to put a finger up his ass and, and that's pretty good. Uh, that's, that's what I'm here for. Um, eventually Alan Arkin's character uh, tragically passes away um, and he was a millionaire. And I don't think that Michael Douglas's character ever really knew how much he meant to him, but he left him and his daughter 5 million each. Um, he starts realizing that his daughter is not spending it correctly um, and that her, that her husband's like buying Porsches and, uh, you know, spending it unwisely. So gets in touch with uh, their mom, uh, the ex-wife, who who then it's revealed is Kathleen Turner, <laughs> which is... A, oh, wow, this really comes full circle. It really does. There's a Romancing the Stone references in there. There's a, you know, War of the Roses stuff in there. Um, it, it's really commenting on their whole relationship and they're like cynical, like a barbed wire, like vicious talking matches basically i i like when uh when a couple's just arguing and bickering and uh the same way we'll get to later i think they just play off each other when they hate each other you believe it and when they don't i think you also believe that um and that chemistry still lives on and she ends up being really great with him she's mostly in the third season there so i'm just getting to that stuff she had like a, a guest spot at the end of the second but now that arkin's gone you kind of need a, a a moral weight on the series so they brought her in um, just something fun that I wanted to highlight here because I, I really like the the dive into method acting and and what Michael Douglas is doing there. Um, it's it's not always the best show. I, I feel like it's kind of plotless or threadless a lot of the time. But uh, when Arkin and Douglas work together, uh, really great moments there. It's good to hear all these like huge names. These A-listers are still you know coming around and, and supplying something. Uh, really nice to this uh, screen. I guess a small screen in this case. Uh, but but to see all these people who probably don't need to work anymore, honestly, you know, particularly with like new generations coming up and stuff, but seeing them still deliver, you know, uh, interesting and, and enjoyable things uh, is, is great to hear. Um, you know, you never want an actor's body of work to end necessarily. And oh. uh, I guess I guess we can, we can hope that uh, Michael Douglas follow, follows in his dad's tracks and lives into his hundreds to to keep giving us stuff i really like his age performance here there's a great bit where he's finally contacted by barry levinson and given another role like in his uh it like is actual career. barry levinson yeah yeah barry levinson's <laughs> actually in it the guest stars too are like that they're they're people who would be stars of a movie um and you could feel like michael douglas of course like uh, really pulling that in, really pulling that that extra weight of performers around it. You know, it's it's a really cheap device that Hollywood can use, but I'm a no, sucker. It's good. Uh, I'm a, I'm a sucker for actors playing themselves. themselves. It's good. I agree. Yeah, uh, I like I like them. I'm I'm a simple man, and and that just tickles me. Like obviously, it's not always good. Sometimes it's pretty 
you know, cheap, but it works really well. You know, I'm a You're... Sunset Boulevard guy. I, I, yeah. I like seeing Cecil B. DeMille portraying himself on screen. That's all I need. Here, I think it's it's sweet, too, because he comes and he, he's telling the um, Douglas character that, uh, well, what Arkin said about him, he he referenced him and said he was so good in depth of a salesman. And now Barry Levins is very interested. And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, Arkin was your, your biggest fan. He's like, oh, shit, I didn't even know he liked me that much, you know? He was just his agent. And really sweet moment there. He gets a, a role in a, The Old Man in the Sea. He's like, well, you want me to play at the sea? But, you know, it's, it's <laughs> real good stuff. Um, I, I like the Kaminsky method. I haven't finished it yet, but uh, first two seasons are pretty gold, in my opinion, and one of the better Netflix things. So That's, that's good to hear. Uh, maybe I'll check it out, too, but probably not. Yeah, I don't I don't know if you need to. It, I don't know if you'll connect to it. It's a... there, There's another thing. Like, I, I thought it was interesting that you brought up Netflix and Michael Douglas because I was, I was just kind of looking at his filmography last night while watching Romancing the Stone and, and there's something weird that stood out to me what and, is it uh, do, do you know about the animated Green Eggs and Ham TV show no I don't I, so, think, it, I think it came up at some point y- I... yeah it's it's about to have a second season which already okay. I'm like what how do you get two seasons out of this Dr. Seuss book but apparently there's a Netflix show an animated Netflix show, the most expensive show, animated show, at like six million dollars an episode. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With each episode, uh, thirteen episodes in this first season about green eggs and ham, where they go to the different places in the Dr. Seuss book that the 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 man says he won't eat green eggs and ham. Okay, they the go guy, all those places. And and the guy who won't eat the green eggs and ham is played by Barry Levinson. Michael Douglas. Okay. No, it's, it's Michael Douglas. And that's how I came across it. I said, what? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I didn't get the chance to check it out last night. When I, I, might with Ezra. I wanted Maybe. to. Let's check uh, in next week about this. I'll yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm interested. It has good reviews. Like it's, okay. it's well received. And, and the cast for it is kind of ridiculous. Just beyond Michael Douglas. Uh, wow. Six million an episode for Green Eggs and that's what it that that's what it says and okay. I, and i was like i was bewildered by its discovery so uh check in next week with us to hear how green eggs and ham is i guess that might be the we'll only see. new thing i could talk about with tribeca so i might watch that <laughs> in my free time there you go i i will check it out at least like okay. an episode or two because i am i am very curious to see what the hell they did here and if this is any bit good because it sounds like a bad idea to me yeah kind of uh, i i should also say that that show kaminsky method is a chuck lorry show who's someone that i don't really like his television shows so. what was what was something else he did for someone uh, who two and know? a half men ah oh, okay Bang theory oh like, yeah not my yeah the most populous stuff on tv but i think this is a uh, somewhere between that and uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. So I think uh, I think in between those two, you'd probably find Kaminsky Method, which is a, a fine show, like a 7 out of 10 show. I like it. Oh, there you go. That's a m- mild recommendation from, from Calvin. Speaking of... Yeah, but if you like a Michael Douglas, maybe yeah. it's a big recommendation. I don't know. Or Alan Arkin, especially. I have to say he's the main appeal there. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Michael Douglas and 7 out of 10 things... Uh... <laughs> Romancing the Stone. 
probably not a film people would expect necessarily, but uh, I love this movie. I expect love expect the unexpected. Uh, yeah, I I I unabashedly love romancing the stone. I I fall head over heels for it every time. I think it's I think it's adorable and sweet and funny and adventurous and everything I want out of a stupid turn your brain off movie. And I'm very happy that you you decided that we should talk about it on this week. I was very endeared to it immediately. Um, everything kind of fell into place in what I really respect about the 80s and think is really interesting about their movies. The Just like the the really beautiful ability just to entertain and, and not to be cynical about it and just really get into like a, it's, I don't ever want to, I'm, I'm focusing very hard in the podcast, not to call it an Indiana Jones ripoff, but it, it I want to say that <laughs> I want to say that it is the genre. I want to say Indiana Jones is its genre. I don't want to say it's a, a derivative piece entirely. Well, that's the thing is that it's, it's surprisingly not derivative Exactly. For how obviously it's capitalizing off of the fervor of Indiana Jones. It came out the same year as Temple of Doom as well. And I'm just going to say it. This is better. <laughs> wow. I don't know if I'll go there, but uh, I think it's I'm going there. really I'm going nice. There. Um, I don't blame you for not going there. Uh, okay. It's not at all like Temple of Doom in any way. Um, but I, I just I love this movie uh, more than I probably should. <laughs> because it's it's not like super clever or like it doesn't break the mold of anything it's very corny and, it is. and hackneyed in places but in all the ways i want it to be like i i'm i'm all here for the overly sugary romantic adventure bullshit that the film is peddling it's never anything less than amusing so yeah uh, and and yeah, it's it's definitely. But the craft behind it, the performances, the the direction, the score, which is like super eighties, like synth cheese. It's like Alan Silvestri just. It's went too for, much, honestly, for me. It is. I, I think the it score is, is way overblown. Yeah. But I also really like. I get it. it. Yeah. <laughs> I get that it's cheese, and I get the appeal of that. For me, it's a little much, but Fair. that's the point too, Fair. right? Yeah, it's 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 leaning so hard into all those like <laughs> romance movie tropes and shit and playing it like almost entirely straight. There's enough self-awareness there, especially with the conceit, the framing device of it, that mm. it just, it gets away with it. It gets away with playing everything like as, as ham-fistedly as possible because the whole idea, particularly with the opening is that it's, it's about a cheesy, like kind of contrived romance novelist you know, writer who ends up going on a journey straight out of one of her books. Mm -hmm. It's almost like exactly like that beat, but learning how like along the way, like, like how not like uh, her, her stories, like there's obvious certain echoes that we have from the intro, particularly in the climax where she's like fighting the bad guy and things don't go like in that exact way. Uh, And, and, but also it is hitting all of those kind of, romantic beats and you know overly you know dramatic uh parts that that you would encounter in a a cheesy romance novel i should say the Uh, beginning is gorgeously shot and it's so focused on 
like almost like MacGuffin, like uh, these things are going to resonate through the rest of the film. So the beginning is so good at establishing from her novel um, what her daydreams were and then occupying those later in the movie. I think I think it's really nice how that's... You've got, a, you've got a nice sweeping shot of her apartment after the, the intro scene as well that highlights certain objects. It's very, like, very reminiscent of what Robert Zemeckis is going to do the next year in Back to the Future, where yeah. you get these... Uh, information about her character from stuff around the room highlighted, you know, by the cinematography. Like you see, oh, she's this romance novel writer. It's got, look, she got this book award thing on her, hanging out on her wall. And it's very, uh, like, overtly advertised, but not in a way that feels like overly, like, explanatory. You know, it's still like a natural sweep through the room while you know, the scene itself is progressing and you're, you're picking up information about the character. And this is really, after you had done two movies through Spielberg, this is really a for hire project as well, where he finally gets to prove himself in the market to, to go do Back to the Future. So it yeah. is important. I mean, this, we can't have Back to the Future without it. This paved the way for Back to the Future. This allowed him and, and writer Bob Gale to, to make the movie they had been wanting to after, mm. after the success of this. I did realize uh, that we're kind of, surprisingly doing two Robert Zemeckis' films like very close to each very other. Very close, yeah. But, but we do that often. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Uh yeah. like Forrest Gump was was to kind of like correct the past there. But this this one we're coming around and saying, no, no, this is a, a, a genuinely good movie. It's significantly movie better movie. than Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> it's not trying to be like anything more than it is. And I think, I think that's and, pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a very, very pleasant and charming movie and it's helped a lot by the the comedy, the the writing with uh, you know that that Bob Gale brings, as well as um, the the original author uh, Diane Thomas. It really is Thomas's movie too. In my opinion, it's it's thoroughly like in that voice, and I think it it required a woman to really write that in a significant way, where it respects the romance and actually does justice to it without it seeming seeming like a superfluous and like it's a, like it's a frivolous uh, genre i think it really honors that um and honors the woman writer who would write a romance novel i mean uh just just like knowing friends who have done that or like worked in that and uh even you know just people who write more you know in the market you would say more frivolous things but i think it, yeah. it never it never gives that impression it's always honoring her as a person and making sure that she's not just like a uh, it's not Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Like, it's not that yeah. low art. Well, I, I want to say as well that I think there is value in frivolous entertainment. Again, I unabashedly love this movie, especially, particularly because of how frivolous it is. You think that's frivolous? Though? Like the, I mean, just the career of writing romance novels. I mean, there's a respect to it, too, that I think a woman yeah, yeah. convey. Yeah, yeah but, but when, I say, when I say frivolous, I don't mean it as like a pejorative term i mean it mm -hmm. more is that kind of sense that it is inherently disposable it's it's, it's meant to fun. be yeah. yeah yeah exactly and but but there is value in that is is what i'm, I'm attempting to convey here and and i appreciate the artistry that it takes to make something qualitatively frivolous it's interesting to me with this Zemeckis movie it's hard for me to figure out exactly what he thinks about what he's making I mean they're very entertaining for me but it's hard for me to get in Zemeckis mind and really I don't I I, I don't have a good read on him like I don't know who Zemeckis is or or why he approaches things the way he does he's an incredibly technical filmmaker I think that's uh, why which, think which is so which is very obvious as his career goes on 
but that but i don't know his personality like watching his movies i couldn't tell you one thing i i don't know his quirks i don't know what he's into you know I, i'm so confused mm-hmm. by him there's there's some interest in something like uh i guess back, back to the future might have some of like his best where he's like kind of contemplating this evolution of of uh you know time and, and relationship with your with your parents and stuff but it's all like very simple too like the qualities of that film and, and this film and others really comes down to the the technical proficiency and the way in which he's able to deliver very entertaining uh and, and charming film uh and and the craft with which he's he's delivering things there's some really great set pieces throughout romancing the stone uh you know he does a good job you know framing the story uh and and uh, directing his actors and stuff oh, he's but, very yeah. good yeah yeah, but again, like, like it's you know, un- underneath the hood, there's not a whole lot there. And with something like *Romancing yeah. the Stone*, that's like perfectly fine. I don't think you would expect that. You know, it's it's a it's kind of very commercial film, in, you know, the same way that what what it's ripping off essentially with Indiana Jones is in the same way. He's a but, good commercialist, Semekis. I think he's very good at that. He was, I'll say. I don't know about lately. He may still be good at it, just making the wrong movies. Maybe he has the wrong material. I I can't tell. It's it's hard to know. It's been a long time since he's made, uh, I think, a really, really good movie. Yeah, I know we've talked about it before. I like Flight. I think Allied's okay. I I don't know about the rest. I would say the last like like potentially great, like possibly great movie he made was Castaway, which was yeah, which is a 20, great movie. Twenty years ago. I'd love I, to talk about Castaway when it's they... on the list as well. Yeah. I, I'm I'm happy to dive into more Zemeckis films. I like Zemeckis as a director. Yeah. I love this movie. We'll get to the Back to the Future sometime too, as well. I don't know how we put that one off necessarily, but uh, I was I was all on board talking about Romancing the Stone, which I feel we, we haven't necessarily gotten to a lot of yet. We're talking um, around it, I think. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think the uh, colorful characters are important. I I love Devito, and even though he's a little bit shocking and <laughs> a little uh, off color there. Yeah, he's he's a great comic presence in the film, which is. Um, you know, uh, very much appreciated uh, kind of lending more of that humor and in, in delivering it through his character so that the the main couple can be more earnest, you know, and, and you, you can really buy into their relationship. Like you said earlier, like the, the bickering, you totally buy and believe that, that Kathleen Turner really just can't fucking stand uh michael douglas and and his uncouthness reads very she's true a, doesn't it? she she's a because she's expecting some knight in shining armor to to carry her off to to the city for for like no charge or anything and it'll cost himself and and he's just like you know like like kind of a self-serving dick in the beginning you know like like he he haggles with her to you know to to take her to cartagena and and then like when he goes you know he, he grabs her luggage and then he like drops it right next to her that's a very humorous moment i feel like it's very brave in a way like i mean i think it's i think it's honorable to do that and to write them as romance characters like he really is his hair at least in the beginning right like a like his luscious hair and it it feels (laughs) like a it feels like the bit in the cowboy thing where the guy just comes and protects her but but the twist there is that she really protects herself in the in the movie of it all yeah and 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 it does so so it, that's what makes it really like 
transcend like you know the more like mundane tropes of the genre is that it's aware of them enough to to subvert them while still playing into them and and ultimately giving us those those same ideals you know so when he does come down originally and then save her from the 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 kind of contrived bad guy right (laughs) who's who's just like unnecessarily malevolent uh i I will say there's there's too many antagonists in this movie the 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 evil fbi guy or the evil federal guy is a little too much (laughs) i i would be fine if we didn't have him but it's all right um so when michael douglas comes in and saves the day like a like a true hero but then ultimately he's just he's a dude who's got to look out for his own you know spot his birds have you know all dried up he's lost his entire you know livelihood for the moment and so he's got to start from scratch and he's not really like, sympathetic to her by turn this you know this uh, white lady in heels in the middle of the Colombian jungle yeah um i i love the yeah i love him chopping off the heels as well by the way um what is it like a, they were italian now they're practical or something yeah that's a, that's a good bit <laughs> There's there's some good wit to the movie. I like the, funny. the yeah, yeah the writing is good. Uh, I think throughout uh, and again like I said it just it, it strikes that balance really well of of being entirely sincere with his emotions but also kind of winking and being self aware and like obviously playing into the fact that these are in- inherently cheesy you know uh, uh, emotions. <laughs> it ranks very high in expected rewatchability yeah i could see myself picking it up at any point i could see myself starting it over um not not even that long from now i i could see myself returning to it possibly upping the score or possibly just sitting with it and enjoying it as a a really great seven yeah it's 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 my go-to comfort movie for the moment me and fiance love to watch this this movie sometimes religiously so (laughs) how often have you seen it you said a lot less a lot a lot uh I, I, I can check now with my letterbox log since I started doing letterbox. It's only mm-hmm. this would be the third time, but I've probably watched it a good other three times prior to that. It's almost like me and Groundhog Day. <laughs> Although that's been a, every year for many years. So that's that's yeah, well, very... you've, you've got you've got a particular day to watch it on, and that makes it easier. I, I guess I have surprised. a lot more years left, right? I mean, I've yeah. done. I have a lot more years than you do, so there's that. Mm-hmm. You're actually yeah, surprised what. Uh, uh, I was surprised that uh, the last time I had watched this was more than two years ago. Okay, I think was interesting because I was like, I feel like I've watched this like twice in a year. Sometimes it feels <laughs> like I, I know the I know the film pretty thoroughly forwards and backwards. Um, mm-hmm. And again, it's like it's it's a movie where I'm like, should I love this movie as much as I do? I don't know. It's it's not like. <laughs> Uh, again, like the, the the qualities of it are all like in, endearing and um, you know charming, but but not yeah. in a, a in overly impressive way. I'll say yeah. it's it's not. That's what I feel about Zemeckis generally, other than Back to the Futures. Yeah, so. back, back to the Future, and I'll also say Frame Roger Rabbit because that yeah, one, sure. you know, technical uh, masterpiece, as some say. <laughs> but um, this one, I just end up watching more for whatever reason because i'm taken by the characters the the adventure aspect of it i think it nails the adventure aspect I, you know, I agree. The, the, yeah. the, the the trotting on the jungle it hits all the kind of big high points you want in a and in, in this kind of like like adventure film without you know, without overly exoticizing the subject i should say as well like 
it has those elements in there, obviously, like like a little bit, but we're not like like Temple of Doom, for instance, where like we're making a caricature of of, of natives or anything like that. Yeah. It does it does play up Columbia as this kind of like, you know, inherently corrupt uh and and kind of like a twisted society full of like like drug runners and such. There's like the scene where where the the sister is, is taking out the Ferrari or whatever and there's the kid who's playing in the street who's actually like working with the, the guys or whatever and like knocks her out with the fucking uh, slingshot right. thing or whatever and then drives off with the Ferrari which is probably the most ridiculous moment of the whole movie but right 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 um, oh there, I, I guess I have an anecdote about it oh, okay okay <laughs> my wife rather has an anecdote about it I'm interested uh, she went to it when it was in theater with her parents um, then they uh they took them there with her brother, uh, knew nothing about the movie. They uh, they walked in after the the initial opening sequence, which is pretty tawdry. Uh, but uh, they're they're pretty hardcore Mormons, right? Oh. Um, at, at some point, I think it's probably the part with the water where it falls down. It looks like it's implied yeah, thing. And, uh, and she, or, or are you talking about the mudslide? Or yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Where where Kirk Douglas is. Or not Kirk. Michael Douglas is yeah. launched headfirst in in between her legs Turner's and, legs. <laughs> yeah, they they left the movie abruptly. Um, oh, so uh, it was many years until my wife got to rewatch it. But uh, I I think she likes it now, and it, uh, I just couldn't imagine leaving this movie. Uh, it, I mean, if they didn't leave then, I imagine they would have left when they were uh, throwing giant packets of marijuana on a fire to keep warm. <laughs> um. They might have been happy with just burning the marijuana and getting rid of it, and just uh, maybe. But like, the, did they not yeah. know that's that's what you do with marijuana? <laughs> that's that's a funny thing. I, I like that scene too, and it's one of the moments where you, you get more character play and growth between them. So it's a good scene. Mm. Lots of good scenes, I think, sprinkled throughout. And again, like the, ah, I don't know how many times I could just say that I that I love the sincerity of it. Like it's just unabashedly like going for that cheesy romance and it does it i think that's a very specific 80s quality that's so good about it um i i I like that about it and yeah it reminds me of uh how things really seemed in my childhood and how it was in the 80s and early 90s and how that really felt to me that sincerity and ability just to be entertained without a too much thoughtfulness and and too much thinking going on in your movies i think true true and again there's a place for that there's a place for frivolous entertainment and i think we and, need it yeah without, i think we can need it without being anti-intellectual or without saying For, that it's it's better than having art i mean i think it's good like like well executed frivolous entertainment thing is that you could admire the craft behind it behind delivering this piece of of well-figured entertainment you know mass audience appeal work to you there's a reason that someone like steven spielberg has been so successful for so many decades because mm-hmm. he's he's really proficient at, at doing this and again you can even go further and say like back and like that's that's what people liked about hitchcock too and even though like like hitchcock movies obviously have some more depth to them you know in, in particular cases but ultimately he was you know uh he was in, in a, a mass appealing entertainment director you know that's what people like about him. that's what made him such a sensation Absolutely, I think you could see the through line Spielberg to, I mean Hitchcock to Spielberg to uh, Zemeckis. Yeah. Zemeckis, absolutely. 
Yeah. Uh, was there any other moments or, or any qualities in particular that stood out to you with this first watch of, of Romancing the Stone? I mean, definitely the self-insertion of the author and like the progressivism of having like the woman actually win the day here. And I just thought that's so nice. And it's absolutely a film and most show Ezra in a few years. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to rush her out of the theater. She's going to watch the whole thing. Because <laughs> I think this is a, a crucial piece of like that that 80s puzzle, especially women in film. And I think it's very good. I think Turner's so great and uh, respectable here. Um, I admire her a lot. She's she's really great. Again, like kind of hammy in parts, but in, in a way that the movie is indulging in and and really accentuating. Uh, and I agree, she she's really great. And this is also like right around the time that Michael Douglas is becoming a, a movie star as opposed to just a producer as he was, you know, kind of like prior to this, um, you know, pretty soon he'll follow it up with like wall street and uh, fatal attraction and stuff. And so. uh, it's a shame because the writer was uh, starting to write for Spielberg after this. And then uh, she died in a car accident, I believe the next year. So um, yeah. maybe you could uh, fill in the gaps. How did the sequel end up going? Oh, uh, Jewel in the Nile. Jewel of the Nile. Yeah. yeah. So uh, <laughs> nobody wanted to make Jewel of the Nile. Uh, I bet. Ro- Robert Zemeckis has no involvement with it, which is already a big red flag. But um, Kathleen Turner didn't want to. Michael Douglas didn't want to do it. But when they but made they Romancing, it? yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. But when they made Romancing the Stone, there was a part of the contract that stipulated oh. that they were that they, they should be available uh, to do a sequel if the, the studio wanted to. So there wasn't really a way around it. And uh, it's like like a, a lot of the things that the Romancing the Stone kind of gets away from that you would usually expect from bad, cheesy romance adventure films. Like Jewel of the Nile just rushes into unabashedly. Uh, the, the, the story picks up. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just tell you the story because we're not okay. ever doing it. The story uh, picks up about six months after they, they, they've gotten together at the end of the movie. They're a happy couple. And Joan is no longer good at writing romance novels uh, because oh, all, no. the, all the adventure has been sucked out of her, her, her life, you know, the, the kind of desire and, and fantasy because she has this very comfortable relationship now. Which I'm like, all right, that's a way you can go with it. I think that's potentially interesting and you need to spice up, you know, your life again. But like, but she pines to go back to New York. Like she wants the the, the kind of stayed life and while, while Jack wants to like go to Greece and do more traveling around the world and stuff. Yeah. And so eventually the kind of like the, the animosity boils. Uh, there's like a, like a jealousy thing that crops up because she gets invited by this dignitary in Egypt to come over and write a romance or novel or, or it's like an expose piece I think actually and and so they go there and like the the animosity just keeps increasing as, as Jack is kind of jealous of this guy always flirting with with her and uh it plays into like kind of mystical stereotypes a lot more uh characters and brown face and such and then it ties in like like a military conflict as well. There's a whole set piece revolving around this like fighter jet that they get stuck inside and they're like trashing up this whole village inside oh, the jet as they're trying to control it. And it's not as good a looking a film at all because it's it's very brown and bland and deserty, whereas you get the nice lush jungles and you know a variety of colors and romancing the stone. But perhaps like most confusing of all is that 
Danny DeVito is in it again. Uh, he, he doesn't particularly have a connection to the plot or reason to be there, you know. Oh, really? because, yeah, I mean, he's he's just there. I think he's like he's bearing a grudge against Jack he, uh, and her for ruining. I believe their... he worked with the Michael Douglas for a long time, going back to he like did. Cuckoo's Nest, Cuckoo's right? Or like, Nest. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, and he's probably the only good thing of the film, just because okay. he's he's actually funny and nothing else is, but he doesn't have a reason to be there as a character. And so it's very bewildering, uh, you know, particularly because that connection with his brother that he has in this film, like the obvious reason he's connected within Romancing the Stone, it's just, it's, it's not there. He's by himself. Uh, so it's very odd. It's, it's not a good movie though. Nobody wanted to make it. And it feels like nobody wanted to make it. The writing is very bad and, and corny in, in the wrong ways. Yeah. Um, and I just, I wouldn't recommend it, even to someone who is a fan of Romancing the Stone. Uh, you know, it, it took a while for me to get it. I was like, well, I, when I was looking for it, I'm like, I know this probably isn't going to be as good, but God, do I love Romancing the Stone. If, if it just has a little bit of that charm, yeah. it's something I kind of want to check, you know, and see. Not and it much doesn't. of it in there? No, no, no not really. Um, the only reason I even remember any of that stuff that I just told you is because I looked it up again after watching Romancing the Stone because I knew I'd, I'd probably want to mention it. Uh, so yeah, it, it does not hold any capacity in my mind even after viewing it, unlike Romancing the Stone, which I constantly want to come back to. Were there any other aspects you wanted to get to before we close it? I don't know. It's, it's one of those that I feel is, you know, like, like I could talk about minute things that I like. Like I like the design of the stone. That might be like an insignificant yeah. thing, but I like I like its you know, vivacious emerald color. You know, uh, I like how impractically it's shaped, how it's just a stone. Um, <laughs> uh, and I like the the adventure aspect with the map and everything. Like like it just hits on all these you know, kind of very very tried you know points of a romance or, or rather an adventure story where you're hitting you know these tropes and such but it does it in in a very satisfying manner you know very tested and true manner um and and i guess i'll end by saying that you, even for how overwrought the score is it's an earworm it gets stuck in my mind those those overindulgent saxophones uh they just they ring in my my mind for a few days afterwards and and i hope you'll play us out with some of it Absolutely. Even if, you, um, even if you don't like it. <laughs> I'll put it somewhere, either before or after, but uh, despite all its overindulgences, I, I'm very, very charmed by it, and I see it a very returnable movie, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep seeking it out. Um, yeah, I'm glad you watched it and enjoyed it so much. Uh, again, its its qualities are mild, but I think yeah. uh, un- unimpeachable for yeah, me. Sure. I'm, I'm endlessly charmed by it and happy to just highlight it on the show and tell people that it's a good movie. Yeah, good glad we got check to it an, out i'm glad we got to another piece of the zemeckis pie um and with all that said uh you want to write us out of this one david punch yes i will calvin kempf thanks for tuning in this week make sure as always to check out our website thetwingeeks.com for our latest reviews retrospectives and features you can follow us on twitter as well at the twin geeks and individually at calvin kempf and at david a punch don't forget to check out our sister video game show the daydream cast pavos brogan uh, as well as our other uh, Ranking the Monsters show with uh, Calvin and Steven. Uh, both are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. 
Uh, leave a review and rating if you can. And we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. And I think we decided Whiplash. Whiplash. Yeah. yeah. Whiplash. We'll see. Uh, probably will be the case. Uh, open to change, maybe. But probably not. Just It'll check it out. Probably the see. case. Yeah. Probably. Uh, let's say like 85.7%. At least. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. Thanks for coming again here, Calvin. And uh, see you next week. Thanks, listeners. Yo, there's a traffic accident I have to mention at the intersection of Tip Avenue, Jacob Javis, Convention Center. And check it, don't get stuck in the rubber neck and on the 192nd.